This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield, a show that tries to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, something like that. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, I feel like we're in one of those phases at the moment where we keep coming back, or as the Americans I want to say, <laughs> circling back. To, um, that's one of my most detested <laughs> phrases, by the way. <laughs> we need to back. devote a show, don't we, yeah. to the phrases that we really do dislike, phrases that point to the decrepitude, the ongoing <laughs> embrutement of, <laughs> of the English language. I think circling back, I, I don't, have I ever used that? I, no, 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 it's not you. It's very not you. Um, no, no okay, it's more, okay. you know what it is. It's, it's become it is. a very common sort of, but I think American-led expression. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're circling back a lot, I've noticed. <laughs> um, so... Today's topic, I mean, we've started in a fairly um, lighthearted manner, but it's actually quite serious. That's terrible. In that we, we touched on the beginnings of this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and then we felt the mm. need to come back to it because there's just, I think, a bigger, more expansive point to be yeah. interrogated, which is what we're going to try to do today. And last week we spoke about, um, you know, a year of COVID, and then, I, you know, I got a sneaky feeling that next week we'll come back to that. You know, it's just one of those sort of moments, isn't it, where how can I put this? The issues seem so big and so consequential and sometimes so heavy that they almost need to be dealt with iteratively. Um, you know, you, oh, you, don't, nice. you don't get satisfied by your first bite. You've really got to yeah. come back and, and have a think about it. Um, at least that's the way I feel. I don't know if you feel that we're in one of those moments. Look, I, I really do. And I think in, as a matter of fact, this points to a very, very important point, I think generally to make about the way that we undertake processes of moral reflection and moral deliberation. Because I, I think one of the things that we tend to do, this is why I, I guess in many respects, I'm not often really satisfied in the way that we talk about, say, first principles, as if moral deliberation were simply, okay, here is, this, here is the particular situation that we're faced with. Strip things back to a hand, uh, to, to a ready at hand set of moral principles. And if we apply those rightly, they're going to give us the correct answer. I think the way in which really any process of serious moral deliberation, moral reflection proceeds is we begin with the particularities. We begin with what is there in front of us. And we begin with as accurate as possible a description of just what it is that we find, just what it is that the particular moment presents us with. And then we engage in this process of bouncing back and forth off what we thought the underlying moral principles are and what the particularities of the situation demand. And I think what we did a few weeks ago with Rosalind Dixon, where we tried to reflect on the fact, you know, can the independent inquiry, do you remember that? Do you remember the calls for an independent inquiry into the allegation made against the former Attorney General? I mean, that's... Uh, and, that, sorry, that seems... and can I say, former Attorney General is an important development now that's led us into a different part of the conversation. So yes. just in that sentence, I think you've captured the iterative <laughs> process of this, if if you know what I mean. But yeah, that, yes. I remember that. And when we spoke to Rosalind about, it wasn't so much about the calls for an independent inquiry, although it was about that. It was also about the question of what would and wouldn't be achieved by that. Yes. Whether an independent inquiry could in fact bear the hopes for, the demands for, I think we described it in terms of capital J justice that was being called for, or whether the inherent limitations of the process itself, the time that it's going to take, 
the confidential nature of any such inquiry, whether they would hamstring, whether they would take something away, uh, or whether they were sort of bound, if you like, to be a disappointment to those that were looking to it as some kind of necessary step forward. I think in some ways, Waleed, what we're talking about today is similar to that. It's kind of related. Mm, um, yeah, that's true. It's, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's whether so much of the anger and the calls for the way I see the word as I hear it is capital C change in neon lights, whether the calls for capital C change that are now being leveled very directly at the federal government, and in many respects also physically in a kind of incarnated or embodied way. If you think back to the beginning of last month, for instance, and the March for Justice that gathered uh, right outside Parliament House, whether or not the calls for capital C change that are being leveled at this house, at this particular workplace environment, uh, whether that really is the agent that's able to deliver on the capital C change that is being called for. It's a really complex question. I'm wondering where you want to take us off in the way that we think about this. Yeah, so I, I think you've kind of, in a way, you've kind of jumped ahead, which is good because that's where we're going, I think, or yeah. I think where we should go. But there, I think there are probably things that need to be broken down along the way good. to try to engage with this. So uh, how do I do this? It's, it's, it's quite difficult in a way. Maybe I, I begin with the observation that there's no doubting the energy of the moment. There's no doubting the anger of the moment hmm. um, and the justified anger of the moment too, right? What is less clear, and I, and I think this comes out again and again and again, as you watch Scott Morrison make misstep after misstep. So, you know, he will either not do anything or try to say there's nothing to see here or or hide behind some kind of abstract principle. You know, it was the rule of law for a moment. It was the presumption of innocence and so on, all of which are worthy principles, but were kind of, I felt anyway, being misapplied in certain mm -hmm. contexts for rhetorical or political effect. As he's kind of pulled the wrong lever time after time that has just led to whatever response he now comes up with, being met with, well, this is just, you know, some kind of token gesture or this is just political cynicism. As or, or even if we don't want to refer to it in terms of political cynicism, that this is that this entire affair that's been kind of overwhelming us for the last two months, that it's been dealt with primarily as a political problem. And by yeah. political problem, we mean party political problem. Whereas I, mm. I think it probably really is a political problem, but not necessarily in the terms that are being used. Well, yeah, I don't know that it's an institutional political problem in the way that the demands and the anger is being framed. Now, mm. that's not to say there aren't real problems in Parliament House. Um, but when you, you know, as you step through the, the responses to everything Scott Morrison's doing, and he's now, I think, in this more or less hopeless position where he's cornered, whatever he does will not be enough, right? Because I think there's not, it's not received with any goodwill, partly because of the way it's been handled up to this point, you see, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, but... Whether you look at that or you look at the, the Women's March for Justice that took place, what was that, three weeks ago now? I've lost count. But, um, yeah, yeah. So you look at that and you look at the demands that were being made, the interviews with organisers. You speak to, I know I've done this, female friends, colleagues about that moment and what's being called for. The thing that strikes me, apart from the obvious 
anger, the the justifiable anger and the justifiable sense of being let down and of injustice. Um, the thing that strikes me and that I think most people I've spoken, just everyone I've spoken to is in the end agreed with is there's not, there's not a lot of specificity about the demand, right? Mm. This is a different kind of protest to one that says um, that the suffragettes launched, for example, that says we want the vote or that you would have found in a whole lot of um, the civil rights protests in the United States in the 60s, you know, desegregation or whatever, where there was some kind of very clear hard demand that could be enacted in a particular piece of legislation or whatever that a government or whoever could then respond to and either say no or yes or here's my version of that or, or whatever it is. The thing about this is it's... Sorry, Waleed. I, look, you, I, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. I want you to pick it up almost immediately, but it's. I think it's worth pointing out that even in those two instances that you raised, though, mm. the expansion of the franchise and the expansion of voting under the civil rights legislation in the United States. Or desegregation or whatever. Yeah. Or, or desegregation or whatever. Mm. I think what's really interesting in both of those instances is, yes, you're right, there was a concrete demand that was placed to government. There was a concrete demand that government could, in fact, enact. It's within its scope it's within the scope of its agency. Yeah, it is the thing uh, of government to do that. It is the thing of government to be able to do. That's right. And yeah. yet, and yet, even in those instances, the particular form of legislation, the particular concrete call that was being made was seen as not the end point of anything, but as initiating or inaugurating the conditions under which a new type of political conversation could take place. And so this is one of the things that particularly the civil rights movement insisted upon again and again, just giving African-Americans the vote or making it easier for them to vote or, you know, flattening many of the uh, the ad hoc or state-based uh, obstacles that prevented them from voting, that what this enabled them to do was to be active participants within the broader political conversation itself. Mm. So in both cases, it's not just a kind of limited concrete thing that's being called for, but a concrete change that changes the political ambience, that creates, or that cultivates the conditions within which a particular form of conversation can then continue to take place. Right. I think it's it's worthwhile pointing to that because that may well be something we want to... No, that's actually... Yeah, you're right. That's an important intervention that might actually... Maybe that adjusts slightly the point that I would make then. Because what I was about to say is that here the overwhelming theme of the demands being made are to do with cultural change. Mm. And the thing about cultural change is it's that's not something that makes sense within the context of the machinery of government, yeah. except perhaps in the way that you've described, right? So by enacting this particular policy, we will, over um, successive decades, experience cultural change, right? By giving women the vote, you will change the culture of politics and thereby the culture of society and whatever. But the, the, there's a non-specificity to the demand. The demand is a really important demand it's just being directed at an apparatus that is not really in a position to deliver it, right? Um, and so I think that's partly why, I mean, by the way, in saying this, I'm not in any way trying to get the Prime Minister off the hook for the way he's responded, because the way he's responded, no. I think, has exacerbated the problem. Yep. But I, when I stop and I imagine, and even when I ask um, 
people who I think would be very sympathetic to the protests and so on. What specifically would you have wanted to see from the Prime Minister? Like as in what announcement would have made you go, okay, that's good. It's very hard to get a clear answer. And I think it's very hard to get a clear answer because the answer doesn't suggest itself very clearly. Now, there are certain things that have been suggested along the way. You know, um, the idea of an independent complaints handling body or something within Parliament House, for example, yeah. so that people wouldn't who had complaints of sexual harassment, sexual assault, or really whatever nature, would be able to go somewhere without fear of the party discipline coming down upon mm. them and, and removing agency from them. Um, and you've seen a cross-party group being launched. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what that will achieve or what form that will take, but that's kind of there. You know, you've seen um, there was a petition that had a whole lot of things there, you know, independent investigations into gendered violence, the implement the recommendations of um, Kate Jenkins' Respect at Work report, yeah. um, things like that. But I think but it's not as though, like those things have kind of come out along the way, but they are not the unified focus of this, right? They are not, it's not the clarion call of the whole protest movement is calling for these things. These are just things that kind of get mentioned along the way, but, but aren't really what the whole thing's about. They're kind of, how do I put it? They're, if they're symptomatic or they're, they're the outcome, they're the byproduct of what the protest is rather than the essence of the protest itself. And I wonder then if what's really happened is we've reached a moment where the problem is so big, so large, the injustice so pervasive that the real problem is we don't have an appropriate mechanism to respond to it. And the question I that, that I get gets raised for me is that's bigger, I guess, than just even this issue, is what is it that we can and should expect politics to achieve? And what is the role of politics in achieving things that are bigger than just politics of the kind you've described, you know, the, the cultural change sort of stuff? Um, and here's my perhaps most um, counterintuitive thought. If what we're after is cultural change, then maybe we're actually watching that in action through this push and pull of the protests, the anger, and Scott Morrison constantly tripping up. Maybe Scott Morrison's most profound contribution here is to fail <laughs> so that mm, you end up mm -hmm. in this dynamic that pushes you further towards cultural change. Like if I imagine the, the counter scenario where Scott Morrison has an astute political antenna for these things and he responds immediately and decisively to, let's say, the Brittany Higgins allegation or, or whichever one you want, and he comes up with something that makes people go, oh, gee, okay, he handled that quite decisively, arguably what happens is less cultural change because he's handled them, he's diffused the bomb in the yeah. moment rather than allowed it to keep going on. So if cultural change is something that is beyond the dictate of a government, maybe the way a government contributes to that is to fail on that and further the dynamic that leads to cultural change in the long run, which is, I suppose, what's really being demanded here. Is this, is this too offbeat? A way of Look, thinking about the current situation? No, no, it's it's not. And in fact, it has quite a remarkable historical pedigree. I mean, one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr., for instance, always warned about were forms of gradual or gradualistic 
change that had the effect of what he described as uh, releasing the pressure or, or, or uh, turning the pressure release valve prematurely, allowing the heat to go out of a situation that's otherwise potentially transformative, allowing a particular symbolic or gradualist change to let people relax for a time, to live with or to find themselves in a position where they can live with the intolerability of the situation. And, you know, for any any form of genuine cultural, democratic, political change, real prudence, real wisdom is no, is needed to know when to retain the intolerability of the situation, how long to retain the sense of anger, how uh, when to make the transition, as Martha Nussbaum would call it, the transition from anger to something far more conciliatory and constructive. I have so many things to say, though, Waleed, mm-hmm. uh, about what you just said, and I'm not sure about our, our time here. I guess the, the one thing, uh, let me sort of hold fire on some of the other things until we bring our guest in, but the one thing that, that I guess, the one warning I would hold out about expecting failure, I, I think that's not what you were saying. You're no, saying no, that's could not. It, well, I'm saying could now it, it's unavoidable. Well, I think you, you're, you're probably right. It didn't have to be. And I think one of the problems of our current situation is that each misstep has made the conditions in which a political leader can put their foot right more and more difficult. So even if they say the right thing now, the complaint then becomes, why didn't you say that three weeks ago? Even if there's the kind of dawning moral realization, ah, I think I'm finally getting just why this is such a big problem for so many Australian women, then the complaint becomes, hang on, are you telling me that you haven't realized this for this many months or years? Why did it take your wife and daughters to explain to you? So, I mean, we're we're in the situation, I think, where you're right, failure is inevitable. However, part of the contract, I think, that civil society makes with representative politics is that if we bombard politics with a series of demands that they cannot, by definition, by by the very nature of the form of agency that politicians can exercise, if we bombard them with demands that by their very nature they cannot meet, that they must necessarily fail in achieving, then it seems to me that we've almost locked ourselves into a kind of bad faith scenario where all we want then is for the anger to keep going and we become deaf then to those crucial moments where anger needs to meet again, what Martha Nussbaum calls the capital T transition, where anger becomes something that is constructive, that is galvanizing, around which a genuine coalition can be built and through which forms of moral, civil, uh, and political solidarity can be achieved. So I think, I, I guess I'm really reluctant ever to try to valorize moments or the inevitability of failure. I think failure must always be regarded as moments along the way from which we can step back, through which we can learn, and out of which we can achieve forms of mutual recognition and hopefully forms of solidarity, coalition, and justice. That That would probably be my first response, but I've got there are many other things that I guess worry me a little bit about what you said. Oh, really? Yeah. Worry in what way? No, 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 no. That, that, that's going to start me on a whole new thing. <laughs> All right. I take it that you'll express that worry with our guest. Um, yes. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN. You may be doing that right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app, or you can also follow The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice.
Scott. Our guest, this is a, a, a real delight. Because of circumstances, she really should have turned us down flat. But instead, she's been so generous with her time and her enthusiasm, and so it makes it all the more joyous to welcome her onto the show. Millicent Churcher is an Alexander von Humboldt Research Fellow and Honorary Research Affiliate at the University of Sydney. She joins us by Skype. Millicent, thank you so much for coming on The Minefield. Thank you for having me. So, so look, there's so many things for us to explore here. I don't even know where. There really is. We, we should begin. But I, I think I might just put this to you in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem that Waleed and I have kind of been sketching out and part of the problem that I think the government is having at the moment is that the problem is ambient, I can't think, I mean, this this would, mm-hmm. would be a term that Virginia Woolf would wholeheartedly mm-hmm. approve of. Mm-hmm. She often referred to the aroma, the odor, the stench mm-hmm. in the air that women have to live with and constantly breathe in. Part of the problem is that the change that is being demanded is a change to the cultural ambience. And that's mm-hmm. not something that politics is good at. It can't change the conditions, it can only do its best, it seems to me, to cultivate certain conditions within which people really can hear one another and respond to one another uh, as fully fledged participants within a common political or democratic project. So is this idea that the change needs to be ambient, is this one of the many issues that makes this such a thorny, such a wicked problem? I think that's absolutely right. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, Waleed said earlier that there doesn't seem to be a lot of specificity about the demands from women that are coming through at this time. Um, You know, they're demanding justice not only in the workplace, in the political arena, but also in the education system, in the sexual relation uh, online. Um, and as you've said, the law, government, these are kind of uh, policy making. These are really kind of blunt instruments to deal with this larger cultural issue. I don't think we should be thinking about, you know, the possibility of having an overarching mechanism to deal with these issues. Rather, what I think it calls for is multiple different mechanisms at all these different institutional levels to address the issue. Yeah, I th- well, I think that's certainly true. Although, Millicent, if Scott's description, which I think was just a much better description of what I was trying to say, mm-hmm. is accurate, then it's beyond institutional, isn't it? It's like it, it, part of the issue we have, I think, is that the focus now has become the Prime Minister and maybe a couple of ministers in the government. And maybe you could broaden that out to the Liberal Party. That's really but one institution that's the focus of all of this or most of this. You're right. There could be multiple institutions across society that have responses that could be reasonably demanded of them. But even then, the ambience of this means it's sort of a supra-institutional problem in a sense, in which case what do you think – which body yep. or which bodies have the right technology <laughs> for the moment? I mean, I, I, I think I think that's uh, really interesting because I'm kind of in my research. I'm I'm. You said you know the focus has really shifted onto institutions and institutional powers, and I actually think, uh, at least in the academic literature, there's been less of a focus on institutions uh, and more, and increasingly more, on a focus on the power of, say, embodied transgressive. Uh, rhetorical performances on behalf of, you know, revolutionary actors 
all the power of social movements to uh, affect change. And what I've been focused on is looking at how institutions really do um, contribute to perpetuating certain cultural meanings and values and through distributing important material benefits and burdens. So I actually think that all of these things um, work together. You know, I think the Women's March for Justice, I think uh, the Me Too movement, these are incredibly important drivers of cultural change uh, along with reformed institutional structures. Now, of course, and this is a point uh, you both raised earlier, I think it's really difficult to quantify the changes that are brought on by things like social movements, by things like Me Too. I think it was Scott, you said, you know, it seems like um, at pivotal moments, you know, the, the heat or the steam just kind of dissipates, right, through gradualistic change. But I think what we're seeing now is the aftermath of Me Too in the sense that, you know, a lot of women, I think, got their hopes up when that movement was coming to the fore. And I don't think it fully uh, realised its potential or what people hoped would come out of it. Um, but now I think you're seeing the aftermath of dashed hopes. You know, you're seeing this resentment and frustration really boil over. So in that sense, I think that's evidence of one of the kind of normative shifts um, embodied shifts that have been brought about by a social movement like Me Too. So, Melissa, what, what do you make of my observation then that from the perspective of history, maybe Scott Morrison's greatest contribution could be to flounder and fail on this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. I think when you have, uh, I guess, a, uh, I'm not sure if you'd call it a scandal, but that's just the word I'm going to use, it strengthens our, it, it brings to the fore and strengthens our normative commitments so I think this kind of spectacular failure that we're seeing in real time is very important. Wow. You don't like that, Scott? Uh, no, I really, the more I think about it, I, I, I actually really, really don't. I'm, I, I'm really uncomfortable with this because I think, I think we are minimizing or not fully morally grappling with the significance of the fact that so much of the focus over the last two months has been on the center or the seat of representative politics. Yeah, sorry, could I? Let sorry, me, could I just intervene yeah. just once? Sorry to interrupt you, Scott. Um, no, well, I, I hope, I hope, I hope I'm not being seen as suggesting that. You know, I do not want to. In saying that, I don't want to deflect uh, responsibility from all of us who participate wittingly or unwittingly uh, in the perpetuation of sexist cultures. So mm. I, I think that there, we really need to keep in mind that we bear a collective responsibility for the issue of sexism in society. And it's important that we don't use any individual, no matter how much power and authority and influence they hold, uh, as a scapegoat. Yeah, no, my point is the opposite happens, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. so that by Scott Morrison becoming this figure that's in this crisis as a result of response after response after response that doesn't work, that's happening in front of an audience that then can draw their own conclusions about their responses. Right. I think it does okay. potentially become oh. norm shifting, right? I, I I don't say this in a, a normative way, though, Scott. Like, I'm not saying I want Scott Morrison no, to fail no, no, and I'm not that. saying... I, I'm just making an observation at, at a distance, as it were, and sort of going, actually, maybe in the sort of machinery of the way cultural change works, that that's the most effective cog in the machine that he could be. Okay. Right? 
Yeah, yeah. All, all right. Well, look, uh, let me try to make two interrelated points here. I'm going to do my best to make this as simply as possible. Uh, and please just cut me off if you think I'm completely on the wrong track, either of you. Um, I think the important failure that we are seeing, and I think this really is an important failure, and that's the, the, the failure of codes or of official mechanisms for dealing with a vastly cultural problem. And I don't mean cultural in the general sense of all of Australian culture or kind of societal problem, but I do mean the culture of Parliament House quite specifically. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that has been really horrifying, I believe, to watch over the last two weeks is even though you might have certain official codes of conduct that might do a certain amount to protect women who work at Parliament House, then you have what my dear old crazy friend Slavoj Žižek calls the kind of obscene underside, the non-codified practices. Waleed, what was Aaron Sorkin's film with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson? I always forget. He's about a few good men. A few good men. You remember the code red? Yeah. You have the official rules that govern the behavior of generals and officials towards privates. And then you have the unofficial things that are carried out. What is the prospect? What is the vision, the footage of a staffer going into the office of a female parliamentarian and masturbating on her desk? What is that? but a kind of code red, a form of, of unwritten, transgressive, but highly, highly normative uh, form of performance designed to keep certain women in their place or to remind them of their place. So I think the, the appropriate failure here is that you can have your proliferation of codes, you can have your official forms of conduct and your mechanisms, but as long as there is the prospect of the kind of proliferation of these forms of transgressive or unwritten rules, uh, then I think you, you really are all at sea. Um, you're coming up against the absolute limit at that point about what can and cannot be achieved in the form of institutional change. Um, so, so, so that's where... I'll confess I've been heartened to some extent to see discussion about quotas over the last few days, even drug and alcohol testing, certain forms of, say, empathy training. I think most of these things are actually really, really good things. You notice they've all been pilloried, though. They have all been pilloried. If not all, then at least most. uh, Yeah. yeah, So Scott Morrison announces the new cabinet with more women in it. Yeah. Having faced a lot of criticism that he doesn't have enough women surrounding him in senior roles and all that sort of stuff. And then the response that I've seen overwhelmingly to that has been, that's not the issue. The issue isn't gender quotas and more women in cabinet. The, the issue is dealing with the sexual assault allegations and the culture of parliament, right? Do you see what I mean? They're like, Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, if I can interject, um, you know, I've seen those. I, I disagree with those. You know, I think those initiatives have important limitations. I don't think it's an either-or thing. I mean, the, thing, the problem comes in when people treat those initiatives as a panacea as a solution yeah, to these yeah. issues. And I, and I think you've got to be, you know, our interventions need to be multifaceted or multi-pronged, right? So if you leave it to kind of bias and diversity training or empathy training uh, alone, then of course um, you'll still have these very powerful formal and informal uh, structures in place that will drive out any good kind of effects that might be uh, or lessons that might be accrued 
through those trainings. And also, you know, it treats the issue of sexism as being kind of a, a problem that's rooted in individual psychologies, you know, in a pathological mindset rather than in also in the wider institutional and cultural fabric itself. The thing, yeah. the tension I always find with those sorts of analyses, though, Millicent, is very common in academia because, you know, the biggest structural analysis is always the most fashionable in, in academia, is that the bigger the diagnosis, the more impossible the response. <laughs> and, yes. and therefore, the more hopeless the demand. And um, the more inclined someone is to say, well, this is just pointless, right? And I think Bob Dylan, by the way, Waleed, I think this is what he was singing about when he said there's no success like failure. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that is that ought to be engraved in some sta- sandstone building someplace in some university. I feel uh, like in, and, the, in the current context, that could mean about four different things and they probably <laughs> were all, they would probably all work. But this is an issue, right, Millicent? Like if, if we were to understand the protest, and I'm not saying this is the only way to understand the protest, but if we were to understand it in the terms that you've described, they then become protests that are impossible to placate, impossible to respond to, and must inevitably just trigger some kind of dismissive backlash because what are you really Uh, asking us to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that the issue then becomes impossible to address. As I suggested earlier, I think what it means is that seeing the issue in kind of all its complexity means that we have to pursue multiple concurrent interventions at multiple different levels and deep, different you know, groups of people and communities uh, will be responsible for those interventions. So I think it's about delegating responsibility here and uh, spheres of action. But um, I, I wonder if I could, I'm not going to say circle back. <laughs> if, 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 I, I wonder if we could actually come back to, I think, just an amazing point that Scott raised earlier about the obscene underside and the interaction between formal rules or norms and informal n- rules or norms, because I just think that is such an important point and it's one that feminist institutionalists deal with in their work. So what I find really interesting is that actually the existence, so I think, you know, informal norms within an institution like parliament often undercut, you know, formal commitments to equality or formal codes of conduct, right? Um, Communities of esteem and allegiance and sociability have a really powerful influence um, Mm. over behaviour, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. But in any case, I think what you're seeing now is that the more institutions commit to policies of anti-discrimination and equality and so on and so forth, sometimes those rules or meritocracy, you know, sometimes those rules um, can be, the very existence of those rules can be used to invalidate claims of discrimination. So I think it's really important that we do keep in mind that there are these always these informal mechanisms undercutting kind of egalitarian uh, practices and behaviours in the workplace. Uh, in term, You mentioned uh, quotas before. Mm. I think that is an incredibly powerful top-down structural solution to um, androcentric 
uh, work cultures. And, you know, of course, we're seeing the inevitable backlash now. But I do think that, again, quotas, if we treat them as a kind of panacea, they won't get us, they won't have the transformative effects uh, mm. that we hope for unless we really change those informal norms or the underside that you were talking about. So unless we change the way in which institutions themselves invest unequal value in ways of knowing and being that are particular to men and women and to lots of different social groups, then I think, you know, there's a real risk. And I think we do see this with women in the Liberal Party in some sense. There's a real risk of co-option, you know, that these actors will come in not as chain agents of change, but rather come to mimic or reproduce status quo attitudes and behaviours. Because as I said, you know, these communities of esteem and allegiance and sociability, they are really important for people. They exert a very powerful pull over behaviour. Oh, God, there's a lot to pick out. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host, as always. But we're joined by Millicent Churcher today from the University of Sydney. Um, look, Millicent, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things, of course, and, and this is something that Martha Nussbaum, a great friend of the show, kind of stressed to me when we had a discussion some years ago about Brett Kavanaugh, is that, you know, I, I asked her, why does judicial character matter so much? And she says, you know, once these men enter these rarefied positions... They exempt themselves, they remove themselves from so many of the chastening and disciplining, uh, morally chastening forms of social interaction. And whatever character they brought in with them then almost becomes baked into the way that they conduct themselves and even in the ways that they see or don't see important aspects of law. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it means that the character of the people coming into institutions then becomes, I, I don't want to, I, I don't mean to be a kind of wowser here, but it, it does mean that the character of the people who come into the institutions, that may be one of the most important ways mm. of beginning to minimizing or stamping out those, those normatized forms of jocular contempt that are mm. often heaped down mm. or that, that, that form the environment in which many female MPs, staffers have to, mm. have to live. There's one, there's one point sorry, here. Sorry, sorry. Can I just jump in there Please. briefly? You realise the inherent problem, though, with approaching it that way. I know. Is that these are not politically neutral values. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so what you end up doing is saying that, well, politics should only be open to people who have a certain kind of politics effectively, when it actually politics is meant to be the mechanism by which a whole lot of different kinds of politics come and compete. And then we resolve those disagreements via that contestation. That's at least the idea. I mean, you see this a bit in, you know, when women who might be, say, senior within the Liberal Party or being promoted within the Liberal Party or whatever organisation actually are politically conservative, they get, they will be singled out and attacked as they know you can't give her this role, the undercurrent, the subtext is because she's not really a woman for these purposes. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, so are we saying that the only women, for example, whose positions matter or whatever 
should align with a certain kind of politics. That is, for example, they can't be anti-abortion or whatever it might be. No. I know that's yep, not what yep, you're yep, talking yep, yep. about, but you see that... that uh, I understand. ...it extends, right? Like that. Once you open that reasoning, you can't help but expand it in that sort it of extends, way. It extends, it, it extends, but it needn't. And, and Millicent, I'm really eager to hear what you have to say about this, but if, if you mm-hmm. don't mind, I'd, can, can I just make one very, very brief point? I, I do think, because I do see democratic politics as having a legitimate claim to being a moral vocation or having a form of, of moral seriousness that is inherent to the political, to the exercise of the political vocation, I do think there are certain forms of what we might call quote-unquote character. And I mean, we, we really do need to sort of interrogate what we might mean by character in politics as well, because I don't think we really know what we mean when we say that, or we have completely different ideas about what that means. Um, character doesn't have to mean, for instance, family values or, or whatever, uh, whatever else it might be talking about. But I do think there's certain forms, there's certain what I think we can only call moral dispositions that are inherent to our understanding of democratic culture. And without those forms of moral relationality or of moral understanding, democracy cannot make a claim to being a form of morally intelligible politics. And so when I say character, I I don't mean you need to be a particular type of person, but I do think there's certain forms Mm -hmm. of democratic relationality or democratic individuality that's, that places that high premium on one another's dignity, on the virtues of listening, mm. of deference, of compromise. Without those things, you, you, you cannot be an effective political representative. That, I mm. think, is, is what I'm talking about, which is why the mm. fact that all of these things are taking place in Parliament House or around Parliament or around representative politics, to my mind, this isn't incidental. This isn't a contingent element. Mm. This is central because so many of the virtues that we've seen lacking, so many of the Mm. capacities that have not been forthcoming Mm. are the capacities that we want to see from Democratic representatives Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. order for them to lay claim to being Democratic Mm -hmm. representatives. So, Millicent, I'm going to hand it over to you, but there's one last (laughs) point I wouldn't mind uh, mind coming back to once, once you're done. Okay. Um, so uh, when you were talking about, um, you know, these figures having a character that then somehow comes baked into these institutions, I really thought of a great line um, uh, from Maura Gayton's work, um, which is that, you know, institutions have evolved historically um, to serve a particular kind of embodiment or an embodied character, you know, mm. a particular body with a particular set of attachments, values, interests and needs. And overwhelmingly, that body uh, has been a white, masculine, straight, middle class body. Right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so, and I think because of that, um, we've actually got institutional setups at the moment that reward democratic insensibilities rather than democratic sensibilities. I think in the workplace, but also in wider social spheres, um, people who occupy positions of power and privilege are rewarded for being uh, ignorant of certain aspects of their social uh, and institutional environment. They're rewarded Um, for remaining uh, incurious, for remaining closed-minded, for remaining arrogant. Um, And I think that 
what we're seeing now, and I think this is why it's such an interesting time to be bearing witness to these debates, is that people are not just calling for, uh, you know, for example, the Prime Minister to listen, but to listen courageously, you know, to break through this kind of cycle of willful, I would say, willful ignorance that has characterised um, the political response to women's issues, particularly within the Liberal Party. Wow. I, that is so important. Wally, do you mind if I just pick up on a, on a point there? Nope. If it... um, this, this, I think, is one of the missteps that a lot of people, they knew it was wrong, but I don't think they quite got their arms around just how wrong it was. You remember in the lead up to and the immediate aftermath of the March for Justice, there were a couple genuinely missed political, moral, democratic opportunities. When the prime minister, for instance, said that he wouldn't go down and listen to the speakers, but but he was willing (laughs) to receive a delegation and meet with them. And then when Maurice Payne, the minister for women, women's affairs, uh, said that she was more than happy to receive proposals and certain entreaties (laughs) by email or by registered post. And then after that, (laughs) she was willing to meet with people. There was something fundamentally wrong about Mm -hmm. that because, because if there is one virtue that is at the center of democratic politics, and this is a virtue, if you like, that stems from the distinctive nature of democratic politics, which is to undercut or to redefine the notion of political entitlement. There is no such thing Mm. as an established or an entitled position of power within democratic politics. Any such power, any such position is given, it is momentarily conferred, and it can be withdrawn. That conferral and that withdrawal depends entirely upon the ability of the representative figure to then make themselves open to, attentive to, and responsive to the voices of their constituents and of the electorate. Mm. In other words, listening Mm. is, in fact, a high democratic virtue. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons... Scott Morrison would have argued that he would have... He was offering to listen. But this is the point, Willie. This is the point. I know that he would say that he was listening, but I think the issue is, you know, to paraphrase Freud, you know, there's listening and there's listening. There's listening in the sense that you're trying to placate people, that you're trying to get on side. And then there's that genuine form of democratic listening, listening as I think a distinctive democratic virtue. See, one of the things about democracy, and this is a point that that George Kateb, the, the wonderful American political theorist, made that I've never quite forgotten. He said, what democracy does is it undermines and forever changes all claims to power made within a democratic polity. In other words, as soon as you have democracy where, where, a polit- where, where power doesn't accrue to someone just by virtue of their position or standing or gender or wealth, as soon as power becomes something that is given and that can be then taken, it means that all power is subject to a degree of censure. All power can be withdrawn. And I guess this is why I think that if there were to be real meaningful change to take place within the culture of Parliament House, within this seat of democratic power, it seems to me that that change is actually really, really important because what it shows is that listening has the capacity to uh, genuinely listening in this in this sort of virtuous sense that I've been talking about, genuinely listening has the capacity to undermine existing claims to power. 
and can actually shift things onto a new footing. Mm -hmm. It cultivates the climate, mm -hmm. the environment within which people can repudiate existing positions, can mm -hmm. challenge previous norms. And that then has this necessary effect of redefining and realigning all claims to power by saying that all such claims to power are themselves subject to repudiation, to challenge, mm -hmm. to change. That, uh, that's, why, that's why it seems to me that listening and this inability to listen, this failure to listen, wasn't just a personal failure, but this is a mm. failure of democratic politics itself. It's a collective failure. I absolutely agree. Um, I think the point that you've raised about um, the difference between uh, bare listening and virtuous democratic listening is really important. You know, I think what people are calling for from the prime minister and other political representatives is uh, listening that's supported by humility courage and open-mindedness. You know, it's this kind of listening that really facilitates or enables, I think, what Sandra Bartke once referred to as a knowing that transforms the self who knows. Mm -hmm. It's a knowing mm -hmm. with an aff affective valence or taste. So there's a difference between, and I think this is a distinction you've raised on your show before, there's a difference between knowing about women's issues and acknowledging women's right. issues in their full embodied reality. So I think, you know, and I do wonder, is the Prime Minister going to read the letters and stories of women um, of their sexual assaults? Are any of the men of Australia going to read the letters that have been catalyzed uh, in the current moment? Um, and I'm not sure that many will. Um, because, you know, that kind of listening opens, you know, makes one vulnerable to feelings, unwelcome feelings of guilt and shame and so on. Um, so, but I also agree with you that, you know, in order to cultivate those virtues of listening, um, we need to ensure that the structural conditions are in place to uh, encourage, support, incentivize those virtues as opposed to discouraging them. You know, I think that when Scott Morrison uh, only wants to meet with women on um, his home ground, um, to use a sporting metaphor, I'm sorry, I think sporting metaphors are completely overused in the Australian mm. context, but it's the only one I have. I'll, uh, I'll show you out now, Millicent. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I won't be making any friends on this show or elsewhere. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, that really, I think, also paying attention to the spaces upon which listening takes place yeah. is really, really important. There's a very big difference when you're listening on your home ground in your home office where there's, you know, um, already a kind of set of power dynamics going on there and meeting a crowd, you know, with placards, um, with protest materials and so on. You know, when you're meeting on their home ground, that demands a different kind of posture and listening, a kind of courageous listening um, so I think it's very important we attend to all of those different contextual uh, dynamics. The point you make about conditions is interesting, though, because, I mean, I, I, mm. you play this out in your mind. He goes out to meet them. Then what happens? The, the, the vision would be terrible. He would be diminished. I mean, he would be diminished. But what would actually happen? Yeah, but, but I think to, to some extent, well, that is the point. No, it, no, 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 so no. Are you skipping no, over think... my point? What would happen? I, if I might jump in, sure. um, I think that is a really powerful uh, intervention 
um, into a particular social imaginary. So I think um, if that image is, you know, wide, widely broadcast, um, you don't often see uh, a male in a position of power and authority uh, in those contexts and apprenticing themselves um, to the demands of protesters. So, so in a way, I think it's a really important, I guess, um, uh, counter image uh, mm. that can really, you know, I think, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to put into words, isn't it? So, but I think, you know, when it's it, the importance of having counter images in our culture um, is really important for facilitating attitudinal so change. I, I, yeah, I see that. I see only two possible scenarios. He goes, he gets screamed at, mm. right? Mm. Then what happens is either he wins politically because Australia looks at him and goes, well, poor guy, he comes out to meet them and this is what happens, right? And that's the politics of that moment. Um, or the media jumps on it and just punishes him for days because those images look bad. Neither of those, it seems to me, is an exercise in civic listening. No, I think that's right. But both of those are preferable to the position of institutional inviolability that he adopted instead. I'm, I, I'm with you, Willie. That's, a, that's an impossible situation. But if you like, both of, those, both of those are better. Both of those are preferable. And that would be the kind of vulnerability, the kind of diminution that could in fact go, believe it or not, some long way towards affecting mm. some kind of institutional change. It uh, mm. would be preferable if we had more time. Uh, we, yeah. alas, do not. Millicent, thank you very much for joining us. I know it's a very busy time in your life and you're <laughs> about to abandon us for other shores and all of that sort of thing. So it's been good to grab you while you were still with us. Uh, and thank you for your invaluable contribution. We appreciate it. It's been fantastic to be here. Thanks uh, so much for this opportunity. It's definitely been the highlight of my morning. Well, hasn't been much of a morning then, has it? <laughs> Millicent Churcher is an Alexander von Humboldt Research Fellow and an Honorary Research Affiliate of the University of Sydney. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. And uh, we're now at an end. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.